When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why BRIC countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast series brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist, but I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas, so in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at economic growth, and my guest is Lord Gus O'Donnell, former Cabinet Secretary and Head of the British Civil Service. Before this, he was the UK Treasury's Permanent Secretary and served as an Executive Director on the boards of the IMF and World Bank. Welcome to the podcast, Gus. Thanks very much. Let's start with definitions. How do we define economic growth? Well, traditionally, people have looked at economic growth as being the change, be it an increase or a decrease, in how much the economy has produced. So you can do that in all sorts of ways. You can add up everybody's income. You can add up how much everybody's spent, or you can look at how much industry have produced. And taking allowances for exports and imports and things like that, it comes up with a total figure, which tells you a lot about the activity in the economy. So it's essentially an activity measure. And does the economy always need to grow for people to live well, do you think? Ah, well, um, I didn't say anything about living well. I said it's an activity measure. And it's kind of like, if I said to you, you know, have you done well today? And you said to me, yeah, I'm doing really well. I've got 10,000 steps on my Fitbit. That's an activity measure. It doesn't tell me whether you've had a good day or a good life. So economic growth by its traditional measures is basically measuring how much is going on, how much activity. Now, Sometimes that's that's good. You know, mostly uh, we're producing more, we're spending more, we're having a better time. But occasionally there are things like earthquakes come along and you would think that will be a problem. But actually for a measure of total activity, we're going to do more. We're going to rebuild stuff. And so it's going to increase things. So some of these, you have to be clear, there's a difference between activity and what's really valuable. So could it be too much activity isn't necessarily a good thing then? Well, for example, if we look at gross domestic product, which is the way of normally measuring it, which adds all these things up, the statisticians in their wisdom decided that they would include in it things like illegal drug activity. They make some estimates of how much income was involved, prostitution, 
And so those things are now in there. But something like volunteering doesn't go in there at all. So if all those people who are volunteering in those vaccine centres decided to say, we're not going to do that anymore, we're all going to go out and either sell our bodies or sell crack cocaine on the streets, then GDP will go up. But probably not a better society. Economies have grown and shrunk throughout the world and throughout history. One such nation was Japan with its post-war economic miracle. My producer, Lovejeet Daliwal, has been looking at what happened then and what it can teach us about these economic forces. Following the Second World War, Japan's economy was devastated with many of its industries, including cotton, brought to its knees. But it's a recovery that was so incredible that it was dubbed the Japanese economic miracle. To give you an idea of that miracle, industrial production in 1946 was just 28% of the pre-war level. In 1960, just 14 years later, it reached a whopping 350%. Japan's government put into place a number of reforms, focusing on the production of raw materials like steel, coal and cotton, investing in infrastructure, building high-speed railways, airports, dams, and encouraging women to join the workforce. Japan is also thought to have gained from the outbreak of the Korean War. It forced the United States to buy equipment and supplies closer to where the fighting was taking place, from Japan, stimulating Japan's economy into the bargain. Japan continued to industrialize at a phenomenal rate, pursuing government policies of vast consumption and high exports. So much so that the average household consumption doubled from 1955 to 1970. And the nature of what goods were being consumed also changed, from necessities to recreation and entertainment. To put Japan's economic growth into perspective, let me leave you with this. In 1965, economic growth was estimated at just over $91 billion. Fifteen years later, it had soared to a record $1.065 trillion. Gus, those figures we just heard were phenomenal. Why do you think Japan's post-war success hasn't been sustained? Those figures are very much affected by the fact that it was a very low base. You know, Japan was devastated in the Second World War, so it was starting from a very low base, and it increased rapidly. And there was plenty of scope for it to increase by bringing, as, as was mentioned, women into the workforce. It came to a point where you could only do that so far, and... They had a very active government getting involved, lending money. And the problem started to arise when the, the big firms, and they had some big national champions that were global leaders, there was an enormous amount of domestic competition. They had finished some of those things like bringing women into the workforce. They had a very aging population uh, and they started to hit problems. So all of those books that were written about a Japanese economic miracle we had to start revising them and start saying, well, actually, it only lasted so long. They, they hit a lot of debt. They still, to this day, have very high government debt to, to GDP ratio. And basically, it all slowed down, partly because other economies came into the manufacturing space, you know, with uh, China, Korea. They all started competing with Japan. But remember, you know, Japan had moved to being the second largest economy in the world, and it's quite often the case that as economies grow, when they get richer and richer, they start to level off because people begin to realise that actually some of those things they're doing 
They want to take in other forms. For example, they want to increase the amount of leisure they have, go on more holidays, you know, have a better time. What's it all for after all? But of course, that doesn't show up as higher GDP. So we see the economy starting to level off. So it sounds like it's a bit of a balancing act then to sort of get economic growth right. Yes. And I would say you should, you know, it is not the altar. It's not everything. It's a very, very important part when you're poor. Economic growth in China transformed the lives of millions of people, brought them out of poverty. But as you get richer, people start to think about more, you know, other things in life. Well, you touched on China there and figures are showing that their working age population is actually decreasing. So might we see their economic growth start to plateau? Most certainly. And it gives you an example why economic growth on its own is such a stupid thing to to look at, because economic growth per person, economic growth for China was vastly fueled by increases in population. The one child policy and all the rest of it has meant that China has a really serious problem going forward about the the ratio of older people to uh, people who are in the working age population. You know, those workers are going to have to look after their ageing parents. If you're going to think about a growth measure and you think that GDP is sort of okay as an activity measure, then do it per person. Stat of the week. Now it's time for our stat of the week. Each week we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week our stat is GDP, or gross domestic product, In the UK, the Bank of England has predicted that GDP in 2021 will be 7.25%, which is higher than the previous forecast of 5.7%. So Gus, what does that figure tell us? These these numbers that you mentioned are huge compared to our historical growth rates for GDP. But we've just gone through a year, 2020, because of the lockdown, where we stopped people spending money. And as a result, GDP fell by about 10%. And lots of people like me, relatively well off, earning a reasonable amount, uh, weren't able to spend it. And we've got vast amounts of untapped savings. Now, as the lockdown restrictions are eased, we're going to spend that, which means that your GDP measures, which measure spending, activity, that sort of thing, are going to jump. GDP growth is going to tell you about those changes in activity. And, And that's quite important because they matter for things like governments, because a lot of that activity is taxed so that can help them work out their tax revenue. It matters for companies because companies are producing the goods. They're, they're producing the goods that are sold in restaurants that we all want to go and spend money at. For companies and all the rest of it, it's great. Just don't fall into the trap that thinking that means it's wonderful for everybody because it'll be, you know, there'll be some areas doing very well and some areas doing badly. And also it's it's a measure of how much activity there is. And Actually, if I think about what I'm looking forward to most as they ease lockdown, it'll be hugs, hugs and kisses. It doesn't sound from what you've said that um, GDP is a useful way to sort of compare economies around the world then. Well, it's a way of measuring their activity and their activity is quite important for all sorts of different things. What you shouldn't do is just think of it as a way of success of what's the what's the best place to live is it the place with the highest gdp not necessarily because it might be that for example they've got that really high gdp by having virtually no holidays everyone's working all the hours there are could be a a very high gdp because they've all given up on the volunteering and you know taken up 
selling crack cocaine, as I mentioned earlier. GDP isn't perfect. But on the other hand, you look at GDP of countries, very poorest countries in Africa and the richest countries. And of course, you know, they'll give you an idea about the fact that, well, in one, life expectancy is much higher than the other and life's going to be better in richer countries generally. But then again, you can be in a rich country and you can be very poor which can make you feel very, very un unhappy with your life. That was Stat of the Week. This week we were looking at GDP. Many economies look at productivity. Do you think that's a useful way to figure out how well an economy is doing? Yeah, I think productivity. So by productivity, we mean how much is produced by every worker. And uh, Paul Krugman, a, a great economist, once said that uh, productivity isn't everything. But in the long run, it's almost everything. Right? And it's, it's a very good indicator of how well an economy is using resources. So uh, you would want, if you want to improve living standards in a society, you'd start by saying, how can we improve productivity? And that would lead you to saying, well, how can we make each individual employee produce more? Well, give them better infrastructure, give them better education. Japan, that, that part of that Japanese economic miracle, brilliant education, some of the highest literacy levels in the world. And what about national happiness or well-being? Is that factored into any measurement of economic growth anywhere? Oh, no. But do you think it ought to be? I think it's the other way around. Well-being, you know, how, how happy or satisfied with our lives, how far we think our lives are worthwhile, to my mind, is the key measure. That's the success measure. And one aspect of that is how well is the economy doing? And that's why GDP measures certainly have a role. I would never get rid of GDP. It's a great measure of activity. It tells you quite a lot about an economy. But it's, you know, if I wanted to know how successful the UK is being, I want to know about how well we're doing in terms of our life expectancy. I want to know how far opportunities are spread around society. Well, US, China and Japan are the top three global economies. So where do they feature on, on the happiness index for their populations? Well, uh, US uh, and so the top ones in, in the well-being index are basically the Scandinavians. I, 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 they always win, Scandies, right? They, they win everything. They, they produce the best crime thrillers and they're always top of these well-being charts. So what are they doing right that we aren't doing? Well, they, they tend to be relatively high tax, relatively high spend economies. They have a very strong welfare state. They are very, very good at childcare, very good at gender issues. So they, they seem to be getting the balance right in terms of the things that matter to people about their lives. You've touched on COVID already, but um, uh, looking ahead in the years ahead, is economic growth going to be determined by how successful countries have been in their vaccine rollout, do you think? I think GDP growth will be uh, dominated by that, yes, because if your vaccine rollout's been good, then you can get rid of the lockdowns, and then that means people going back into the pubs, bars, restaurants, cinemas, theatres. That's all spending. That shows up as higher GDP. So, yeah, if you've, if you've got a good vaccine rollout, then uh, you will do really well. And I think you'll see that in growth in both the US and the UK. And, and do you think there's an opportunity now for a more sustainable and inclusive way of growing economies? I'd, I'd like to think so. I think you can see that around the world, that countries from New Zealand to Iceland, uh, the Scottish economy, 
whilst they're all talking about having well-being budgets and about actually understanding that what they need to deliver as governments is what matters to people. And what matters to people are the things which affect how they feel about their lives. Gus O'Donnell, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's very enjoyable. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review It's The Economy on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's The Economy, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. This podcast was produced by Lovejeet Dhaliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jasset.